Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five, and it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today we are coming at you with our dog, Ashi. The asshole Budig sitting in my lap, and I'm just waiting for her to start hacking. You're going to hear the sexy, sweet, puggle sounds of <laughs> soon. Ashi has hacked into a solution to getting out of our cuddles, and that hack is to hack. So she, as soon as you cuddle her- You would her, think she's allergic to human touch. Yep, that's right. I don't know if this is translating for you listeners, but there is a, an adorable little puggle in Catherine's arms who wants to be the- There it is. Oh, it's, it's calm. Uh, it's it'll, calm. It'll Who wants to be the third host on today's episode, the third episode of season four of Free Cookies. Because she wants to be a divine. And today. And today we have Ellie Easton, the author of the beautiful debut novel, The Divines. She's British. She's everything you want her to be. She is a delightful writer. And it's a fantastic novel. Yeah. And one of the things we get into it. Okay. We, bye, Ashi. <laughs> this up. is why we should stream this live on YouTube. Obviously. There definitely needs to be video. Yeah. Um, but one of the things we get into about with Ellie is just the, I think the allure that obsession, the obsession possibly that, that prep schools have in our culture and in the, in the British culture. If a too. TV show is about a prep school or a novel has prep school in the description anywhere. Yeah. I will read it. That for me started with the novel prep. Oh, there's a novel called Prep? Yeah, there's a novel called Prep by Curtis uh, Sittenfield. I hope I'm saying that right. And it came out like 15, 20 years ago. I'm sure there, I mean, obviously there's like Secret History by Donna Ooh, and Secret so, Societies. I love yeah, novels societies and movies about and, Secret but, Societies. Um, they also make good movies as well. Uh, yeah. Which is a transition to the movie that we want <laughs> okay. to talk about. I was going to say, where are we going with that? I'm glad we covered that. Uh, we, we did. We watched the animated Pixar film Soul last night. Yeah. Which highly recommend. Five stars. If they Five, had honestly, Apple podcast reviews. And honestly, if, if it was out of 10 stars, I would have given it 10 stars. Which is normally how I feel about a good animated film. Animated films are weird for me because I usually am kind of reluctant but they cut to the truth so quickly. Yeah. You don't get caught up in all of the human bullshit where you're like, that's a human. You're like, oh, these animated people are just like really giving it to me straight. But we were intrigued and we don't want to spoil. Oh, sorry. Did I not laugh at that joke? No, it was terrible. It was <laughs> terrible. Like I'm in, I want to restart the show. It was so bad. But oh my gosh. I'm going to just leave it there. This is the woman go. who randomly said Punani in our last episode. And she's upset about that joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, the movie, the thing that we thought was so interesting oh, yeah. is this, and we don't want to, to ruin it for you, but basically the conceit is a, a jazz musician who's a, a middle school band teacher who feels that he has not fulfilled his purpose. And at the beginning of the movie, he's about to play with this unbelievable jazz musician. And this is going to like big break, know, big break, big break. And he dies on his way. <laughs> I don't think I'm spoiling anything. No, no, no. That's the first five minutes. And so he dies. You're good. He falls down a manhole. And then the rest of the movie is about him trying to finagle his way back into his meat suit. And 
it's this unbelievable story about souls and, and what it is to be human and the difference between passion and purpose. Yeah. And so there's this moment in soul, which if you are a listener of free cookies and you didn't think you would watch Ted Lasso and then we were like, Mm. Oh my God, Ted Lasso is amazing. And Mm. then you watched it and you were like, I love it. Soul is similar to that where, you know, there could be people who are like, they don't love animated movies or like, it's not striking a chord, but it's one of those movies where you watch it and you're like, okay, it, it really hits all of like a good jazz musician. It hits all the right notes. Um, yeah. Wow. I, I just again, went for that I super again. obvious. <laughs> okay. God. Anyway, there's this moment in it where they're in the, the afterlife and it's a very interesting conceit, everything they put into the afterlife. But in the afterlife, you can see that there are people who are in the zone who are still alive. They're, you know, they're playing basketball and they're quote unquote in the zone. Yes. It's an actual plane that you get to, yes. to witness. And it's where like the two worlds collide, right? Yes. Like a meditation, a meditative state where you kind of right. touch some something ethereal. Like a footballer, like when they're just lit up or you're playing piano, yeah. like a jazz musician. Or a writer. <laughs> Um, <laughs> <back off>. um <laughs> but so they, they, they talk about like this being in the zone of this collision of planes and how beautiful it is. And then in the afterlife, there's also people who have like lost their purpose mm-hmm. and they're kind of in the afterlife. Like these gray monsters with the long skinny arms and, they're and big dark. fuzzy bodies. And one of the characters in it makes you like, oh, like being in the zone, how beautiful. And then like looking at another human who's like lost his purpose and they're like, how could that ever happen? Like, that's so terrible. And the people in the afterlife are like, you'd be surprised how close those two things are. Mm -hmm. Being in the zone and then tipping over into like obsessive, like hyper-focused, where it's like, it goes from like, you're a jazz musician who's in the zone and loves music to like, you've forgotten what actual life is about and all you care about is success and achievement. Yes. And so I thought that soul did like this perfect job of illuminating these two ideas. And the question of are, is your passion and purpose necessarily intertwined or do they have to have anything to do with each other? Because, uh, you know, we started talking to each other after the movie and there, I have many, I'm, I'm a yoga teacher and I'm a writer and, a lot of other things if I were to actually start rattling off the things that I do. Yeah. And I worry sometimes that I'm, you know, a jack of many trades and a master of none. Did I just say that right? Yeah. I mean, you, honestly, as you started, I was like, this is going to be great. I, I, Cause I was going to mess it up and you were going to yeah, laugh. I pictured it like a, like almost like a YouTube video of somebody <laughs> falling right. down the stairs and like me just like loving that. And I just walked down to my six inch heels. Bam, 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 bam. bam. Jack of all trades. So, yeah. and because Kate will, I, I love to cook and I'm very good at it. And Kate's always talking about me writing a new cookbook or opening a restaurant to which in theory, that sounds amazing, but in actuality to get it to the level that it would need to be to succeed, I know I would lose my love for it. And I know it would slowly- you worry you would. I worry. I'm not saying that there can't be people who own restaurants and still be passionately in love with food, but- very quickly in the same with, you know, I, I designed for Kira Grace and I do capsules, but I don't think I want to have my own clothing line because then that is going to strip away my love for fashion and design because then everything starts to pile on top of you of, of what it means to build a business. And, and then you get away from the creative aspect and you have to take care of business. And obviously deep, deep bows to all the people who, who run restaurants and who run fashion houses because I partake in them and I love them deeply. But it's, I do think as a culture, we are told, you know, the saying, like, if you love what you do, you don't work one day in your entire life. I I hate that saying because it's, it's unfair to put the pressure on someone that just because you have a passion that you have to make money off of it, or it needs to be associated with accolades. Or if you do something and you have a spark as soul uses, like you love something and you don't make it your career, like maybe you're smarter than most people. It's it's keeping you know? something for yourself and yeah. preserving that beauty. And hopefully whatever you choose to do career-wise, it, it does create a spark as well. Yes. I mean, that would be a very sad idea to think that there's zero spark with what you have to do on a daily basis. But I do think that our culture puts too much pressure on the two blending together. Because yeah. there's even that moment in Soul where he's like, they, he's, he's saying like, I have to find my spark, which is my purpose. And mm-hmm. the, the, the people in the afterlife are like, wait, where'd you get the idea that your spark is your purpose? Totally. And I, I love that. So 
this is, I mean, we are sponsored by Pixar, so we should probably <laughs> so we offer that disclaimer late we in the show. We are so wealthy. <laughs> do, you think El, do you think Ellie's like, now try to tie that back to the divines. Ooh, the divine. The, the, after, the, the, the divine afterlife. creator. The, the, the celestial. The, yes. The, the soul. I think truly the underlying story beneath all of these cruel girls in this British prep school is that they are connected to God. Yes. And, and spark and purpose. In fact, let, maybe we'll just, we'll bring Ellie on and let her fix this. Yes. <laughs> Which she won't be able to do. Nope. <laughs> we love you, Ellie. We hope you got your crackers. That'll make sense later. All right, let's bring her on. Keep listening. <laughs> Ellie Eaton is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The Observer, and Time Out. Former writer-in-residence at a men's prison in the UK, she holds an MA in creative writing from Royal Holloway, University of London, and was awarded a Kerouac Project Residency. Born and raised in England, she now lives in Los Angeles with her family. The Divines is her first novel. Okay, so I should confess that America, we are like the worst people to have on a Trivial Pursuit team. <laughs> <laughs> We're just useless. We're kind of like, we, when we lived in Chicago, uh, our friend was a hardcore Sox fan. So we loved the ritual of going to a game and eating the peanuts and singing the songs. Like, I really got into it. And we um, started bringing binoculars to games so that I could, like, <laughs> look. I loved it. I was like, oh, my gosh. The players or like... other people in the stands? <laughs> oh, well, like both. Okay. But, but mainly players. But so you could just, like, stare, like, into the dugout. I don't know if it was in, like, 10 Yeah, months. that's right. But, that's yeah, right. Yeah, we loved it. Um, we have gone to Dodgers games. I don't, I'm just not up. I'm just no no facts. I just love the spirit of the game. Yeah, yeah. I um that's funny because I would think I personally even though I love sports, going to a baseball game feels like going to the dentist to me. It's just so <laughs> long, long and boring and and Catherine would love to, you you would love to go to a baseball game, right? More than yes, I would. Yes, but my father worked in baseball, so it's something that I grew up in. So it's yeah. it's kind yeah. of this nostalgic. I go for you know it's I would go for the hot dogs and the popcorn and and the ice cream and the little upside down baseball caps. You know, <laughs> yeah, with the slushy in it, the yes. bright blue slushy. <laughs> I go for the so food. amazing. <laughs> I just love. I know I'm all about the half. I'm doing it. I'm again not using the right. It's like what I call the halftime tune. I'm like, oh, this is just the best. Yeah, the, the seventh inning stretch. <laughs> yeah. That one. That's the yes. one. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I mean, you just don't want me on your pub quiz team because when people are like, who won the World Series? I'm like, mm, no. But no, I loved I, I love the way you said the socks so authoritatively when you were living oh, yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Even though I was like for a second, you know, there's numerous socks teams in Major League Baseball. <laughs> But, but I put together that you were in Chicago, so I, I did pick up on it, yeah. Um, but yeah, okay, let's just good. jump in. We won't even do like a hard start. We'll I just know, roll this through. is too good. We have to keep yeah. the, this Sorry, conversation. Sorry, we're, we're keeping your embarrassing lack of baseball knowledge <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> Heather Shouse, who is my hardcore Sox fan, will be just like slowly shaking her head <laughs> in Chicago right now. She'll be like, oh, shame on you. Um, well, it's, hmm. I mean, not to take us away from the joy of mm-hmm. baseball. The pastime. But we definitely want to discuss your brand new novel, The Divines. And, you know, I was just sitting here, Ellie, looking at your book and it hit me. And I I want you to give our listeners a little summary, a little elevator pitch of what it's about. Um, But as I'm looking here, I'm like, oh, Ellie Eaton. How funny that your last name is so similar to one of the most famous sporting schools in England. (laughs) That's right. So, Uh, yeah. It's close, isn't it? I know. Yeah, not quite. no, but but still, yeah, just kind of stood out a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's interesting because I just haven't lost my accent as well, much to my slight annoyance. We've lived here 10 years and I think I probably still sound as English as I've ever done. Wait, oh, do you, well, you sound accent. incredibly English. Do you want to lose your accent? Yeah. Yeah, I kind Do you of want, want to the, sound like the, us? <laughs> I want, well, you know, it's funny because whenever I listen to NPR I'm, and, you know, like your podcast or any podcast, I'm so in awe of like the ease in which Americans are able to articulate themselves. I honestly, when I told my mum was doing, I was doing a podcast, she was like, you mustn't mumble. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like, um, you know, sometimes... 
particularly if I'm hungover, over, I'm quite hard to understand. And so there's something about the sort of, I don't know, the kind of casually smart way that I feel like people on the radio here are able to speak and very in awe of that. So, yeah, I would like to kind of have a slightly more kind of rounded nature to my the way I speak. But do you think like your drunken speech is difficult for hungover. Americans? Hungover, drunken. Yeah. Let's amp it up. Let's make sure she's still drunk. <laughs> like if, if you're a little sloshed and you, like would other, do you think Americans would struggle to understand you or do you, oh, or would yeah. it also is this like a common, British people? <laughs> <laughs> is it that level bad? <laughs> it kind of, it, I think it is. I mean, I didn't realize also how many words I use probably quite frequently and people have no idea what I'm I'm talking about and are just really polite or I'm mumbling so much they just don't understand because when I was doing my revisions on my book and you know you um you get all your sort of coffee edits back there were a lot of words that they were like no idea what this is I was like oh but it's you know like there's a, a word called revision, ironically, in um, England that you use when you're at school. It's like, oh, if you're revising for an exam or you're prepping oh. for an exam, your notes are called revision. You're, like, you're doing revision. And they were like, no. Mm-mm. Not going to translate. Nope. Nope. Nah. That's yeah. so funny because I have a memory of reading your book in bed and, and looking over to Kate and being like, this is, it's been a while since I had read a novel by a British author that embraced the the. Britishisms, and yeah. and I I really enjoyed that because it it just felt, for lack of a better word, so authentic. It, it, it was that yeah. extra layer of truly feeling like I was part of this experience in this boarding school. Um, oh, it's funny you said that's very lovely. We actually did have a choice. I think I wrote to my incredible editor Liz, and I said, you know, the, the notes have come back that some of these words aren't translating. But I said I sort of strongly feel that that Josephine would not use the word, I don't know, diaper, for example. That just wouldn't be in her vernacular. It'd be nappies, right? Yeah, exactly. Or yes. So um <laughs> so we did we did have this decision. I was like, I think I kind of want to stick to the to the British ones unless the word is so cumbersome um and would really have people scratching their heads. Because mm-hmm. I think uh, most people will just Google a word if they don't know what it means, I think, don't they? So I was like, I think it's, I think I would rather keep it true um, to that voice and that culture. So I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Uh, yes, absolutely. And the other thing that you point out when you're talking about the divines, and I know we haven't gotten to the summary of the book. Yeah, yet. we're still we'll, waiting we'll for that, that yeah. but let's just keep going. <laughs> we're going to plow along. So, um, I don't think I'm going to spoil anything because it's the title of the book, but the divines are the names given to the girls at this boarding school, their nicknames. And there's kind of this, uh, the divines versus the townies. And you Mm -hmm. talk about this posh accent that the divines have. And I don't know how you are with your accents, but would you, would, how would you describe your accent? Is yours posh? Um, I don't know. I think I'm a bit of a chameleon. I, <laughs> I, I like, and I'm, I'm a sponge, spongy chameleon. I suck up what's around me. Yeah. So I think over the course of the last 20 years, I've probably, and I lived in London for a long time. I sort of was aware, I used to work in a prison and I was definitely aware that I spoke a little bit differently than that in that um, a, a posh accent is really grating I find it grating and I and you know I um I, I went to that kind of school like would so, you say the queen's accent is posh or oh yes okay. that's like the epitome you know like the epitome of um there's a sort of Christmas to it and and what's so weird about um accents in Britain is that they're such class signifiers and I think it's really it's kind of sad but like the way that people use a particular word whether you call your evening meal you know supper or your tea or Mm. dinner like immediately a Brit will place you in a particular box um Mm. and that's actually the really nice thing about living outside of Britain you're so freed from that you know no one they might not understand what you're saying when you're hungover (laughs) (laughs) they're not telling you like where you came from and what your background is yeah I mean my yeah my accent's a bit all over the shop I think and we will be diving into the divines but since I'm obsessed with Phoebe Waller-Bridge what is her accent where does she and how do people feel about Um, her in England are they as obsessed as we are I think so I think that show was just like universally loved I mean I loved I just loved it I found season two was maybe the best season of television I've ever seen 
it what between that and I may destroy you, which I am still mm-hmm. like un like trying to undo and put back together in my head. I don't know <laughs> if you've seen that, yeah, but we um, did, both we did. of those, yeah, uh, both of those shows, I just thought were incredible. Yeah, she has a very very posh. She does. She's posh. Okay. She does. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when if. if if someone in England ran into her and she wasn't a big star, as, as soon as she started speaking, someone would think she was kind of upper crust? That and her double barrel surname would be, you know, dead giveaway. Her double name, <laughs> yeah. Waller Bridge? Oh. Yeah. What does that yeah. mean? Well, it's, you know, it's traditionally um, in England when two aristocratic families got together, um, particularly if there was no, like, male inheritor on one side, they would join the names together. So there would be, like, a hyphen. So, interesting. Um, okay, to, so on to the device. We have a baby, you and me, Kate. But we're not. We have yeah. last names, and we go to England. We will immediately Ooh, be hyphenate posh. them. Yes. yes, we should hyphenate them and be like, "Well, look, we're, the it's like no, we're just gay." <laughs> <laughs> Which is also posh. Um, I mean, I think you could have. You could really like. What order would you put them in? Though that's the interesting it, thing. We'd yeah. fight over that. Yeah. It would, it, yeah. yeah. We'd take a poll about what Brits thought was more posh, which way. And then we will do it that way. <laughs> but so, so uh, you know, the first, I would say the first book that I read that had a, like a prep school background, uh, mm-hmm. like backdrop, excuse me, was pr- the actual book prep by, by uh, yeah. Curtis Seinfeld, yeah. uh, Steinfeld. Um, but I, but ever since that book, which I read probably about 10, 15 years ago, I, whenever I see that a book is set at a prep school or a boarding school, like I just know that I'm going to love it. What do you, what do you think it is about that kind of prep school backdrop that is compelling to people? Um, I mean, I think those institutions are different in Britain than they are in the U S possibly. But I think in England, um, you know, there is much about who's not allowed in as they are, who gets to, to um, populate those very posh schools. And so, you know, the percentage of people going to private schools is tiny, but the alumni that come out from them have such a profound influence on British politics and culture and law. You know, they really are um, our magistrates and CEOs and they run, you know, they're at the BBC, they're everywhere. So it's this interesting thing I think about um, their fascination because they're so exclusive, I think. And so you want to know what happens behind the gates where, whilst also being a little bit disgusted by them, mm-hmm. I, I think. That's, that's how I feel about American elite boarding schools, mm-hmm. except for the part where and the part where the alumni are incredibly influential not that they're not and you probably could put a list of people who went to like Exeter in front of me I think that's a Mm. a U.S. one or you you probably know more of them Ellie than I do but I don't have the same sense that our country is run by prep school graduates yeah but I but I do think we have the same Same association the same fascination with like the secret clubs and the behaviors and the elitism yeah. and trying to like be a voyeur in that place. And they produce yeah. less uh, hyphenated last names and more juniors in the third. That's true. That's true. In the U.S. Yes. yes. That's, yeah. that's that the American version. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, anything that is sort of beautiful and old and ritualistic is usually behind it is just, is it's buttressing privilege in a way isn't it and so that in itself is kind of fascinating because it's it it already sort of pits the haves against the have-nots um and that as a subject matter I think I mean it's really it's it's was fun to write but it was also felt like important to me to write about it because you know I'd go back to England and I think when I was living there it's just so normal that you the class division is something that you people just kind of accept in an, in an odd sort of way and then it was only moving here and then going back and and just being kind of a bit horrified by how extreme it is. And then looking at Boris Johnson, for example, and I think mm. someone wrote a list of his cabinet and how many of them had gone to Eton or if not Eton, similar um, 
private boarding schools and usually single sex and just being horrified. You're like, God, these people are, are running the show and they're coming from such a sort of minute sector of society that's not reflected at all of like the rest of the population. So, you know, for me, it was a double-edged sword. It was like juicy material to, to frame a book around, but also like, wait, this is kind of awful that this is still the situation you know, and not just in Britain, I think probably in America too, the, the class divide is is mm-hmm. different to to in England, but it's very it's very real, isn't it? So oh, yeah. And this is kind of a sticky question, I suppose. Did did you go to a boarding school personally? Well, I did. I mean, damn it. So your accent's <laughs> probably posh and you're just <laughs> pretending it's not. I know, I know, it could be a big fraud. No, I did. I um it's an interesting one because I was chatting to my parents, you know, when I wrote the book and I was quite worried that they would think it was a, you know, a criticism of the decisions that they had made for me. And I think it's natural for any parent to want to give their child the best education that they can. You know, and I think Zadie Smith is actually really interesting on this because, you know, she was saying that that's just instinctive. We all want to do the same thing. And so unless you dismantle, um, you know, the apparatus that, that surrounds or protects um, the upper classes and privilege, then nothing will ever change. Of course, parents, if they are lucky enough to have money, will try and send their kids to private schools. That's just the way it works. So, um, so for me, when I was writing, I, you know, it's it's all because I so clearly come from a place of privilege, and I think I have the option to ignore it and just sort of pretend I don't, my accent's not as posh as it once was. Or you can just say, wait, hang on a second, isn't it important that I call this bullshit out? And say, like, like, look, this is what these places are like. This is the damage that they can do. Like, you know, this is how embarrassingly white they are. I don't know. If that, I suddenly was like, well, actually, maybe if, you've, if you're lucky enough to be able to write, then maybe that's something that I should be doing. And, and as far as the, the schools like Eton in London... And I'm mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not well versed in the other. There's the Scottish mm-hmm. one that Charles went to. That he well, that was college. Oh, um, we watched the Crown. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, did oh you that's wait? right. That's right. Oh Just, yeah. That's yeah. where I get all of my information from. <laughs> Brief aside, then, did you watch them dancing to Lizzo today? Did no. You see oh. that? That, no. Oh, no. Who, who, who oh, was dancing real to life? Lizzo? Charles was dancing to Lizzo. Oh no, the, the um, actors in the crown oh. uh, same thing, same choreographed thing. a little Lizzo routine. <laughs> and they're all dressed in like funeral clothes. It's amazing. Okay, well okay. that's we're gonna have to let you go. We're gonna have to put you on hold. <laughs> oh. End of conversation. <laughs> obviously in the, not obviously, but in the in the US since since you've been here ten years, yeah. you're privy to like schools like Harvard and Yale, like Mm-hmm. consistently trying to have a well-rounded population of kids and try yeah. to, ha- from all across the world, try to make it not an elitist institution. Mm-hmm. I, as- I assume that that model, either we're replicating what is ha- has happened in England or vice versa, but I'm assuming schools like Eton and those in England are aware of their impact on culture and society mm-hmm. and have tried to democratize the process, right? I mean, I would really, really hope so. Um, it's been a long since I've, time since I've been into one of those establishments. I mean, much like the narrator of my book, when I left school, I just didn't look back. I, I went to university in um, Newcastle in the north of England and I just found friends that I suddenly was like, oh, these are my people. And I just completely lost contact with uh, with any of the people I'd gone to school with. But um, yeah, you would hope, I mean... That was one of the tricky things about writing my book was that I was painfully aware of what a white world I was I was describing. There's um, one black student at the school who is an African um, exchange student. And, you know, Kwamboko is treated just as a kind of class pet. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of really uncomfortable to write. And, and there were quite a lot of moments in the book, um, whether it was about sort of sexuality or gender or whatever, in the book that felt really uncomfortable and awkward. But I felt that they it would be misleading to suddenly have a very sort of multicultural school because... Mm-hmm those places were very very white I think in the 90s um 
and yeah, I, I hope that that's changed now. I think that there are probably quite a lot of students from um, other countries going to boarding schools, but I don't know whether they're just the, the richest, you know, they reflect mm-hmm. um, rich foreign students as opposed to people in Britain who um, who are black or Asian or whoever. I don't know quite how that works out, but... Mm-hmm. That was part of what I loved about your novel and your writing so much was the, I mean, generally speaking, if I'm reading a novel and there are unlikable characters in this story, Mm -hmm. you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure there because you don't really want to dive into a world of unsavory characters unless, you know, they're they're evil and maniacal and what have you. But you did this. Truly, and maybe it's because your writing is is truly stunning. You have such a beautiful narration voice. And the juxtaposition of how you chose to frame everything and the language with... You were were just very unafraid to peel back and and look at, you know, the bare-boned version of who these Mm -hmm. characters were. And it's one of the first novels that I've read where I'm like, wow, I don't, and take, don't take this wrong way, but I don't <laughs> like a lot of these people. No, and yet here awful. I am like, truly wanting to know, like, are they going to get their comeuppance or is this, and also, yeah. you know, looking at the age group too, where girls, those age, regardless of, you know, whether they're in a prep school or a public school can just be horrendous and awful to each mm. other. And that exploration of what it is to be so young and selfish and flippant. And um, yeah. it was just painful, especially around the character of Jerry, you know, our um, ice skating yeah. uh, little ball of fire that's going to erupt no. all the time. And um, these characters, so now that we know you went to a prep school, mm. are they based on anyone that you actually went to school with? <laughs> you know, do you- I mean- <laughs> be careful don't I um I guess like all writers you um you know a lot of the characters that you write are a kind of amalgams of different people and different experiences and different feelings things that you felt or have experienced from like one or other side of a conversation um and so the setting of the school geographically is very similar to the school that I went to um and some of the people, the girls that I populated the book with are like very reminiscent of the kind of girl that I went to school with. Um, but then I think you have, so you have this kind of outline and then as you start delving or getting deeper into the book, they become real and they become quite different often to, I think Jerry got angrier as I wrote the book and then I redrafted and I redrafted as I understood that there was stuff going on in her life that was um, informing the way that she was behaving. Uh, You know, she has her own secrets that she carries. And it's just that the other characters are so self-involved because teenagers are the most narcissistic (laughs) of all people um, that you, you don't really understand until the end that, oh, you know, you could write a whole other book about Jerry and what she was going and I knew that I wasn't equipped to tell that story but I felt it was important that you understood that yes she's unlikable and yes she's this angry small ball of fury but like there's a re there's a reason for that and then I think I hope you empathize in some way with all of the characters to some extent maybe not no 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 no, I do and I mean you know I don't want to give anything away to anyone who hasn't read it yet but just the Mm. your protagonist and Jerry like do have a rather uh, tender experience to maybe tender is too extreme of a word but which broke my heart as I was reading it because I knew where this was going you know anytime you see those characters come together I'm like this is going to end badly (laughs) (laughs) I mean the really interesting thing about writing about teenagers um is that you know they feel such extremes of emotion their behavior is often quite erratic and and you know illogical um but there's also this like idea in society that we evolve right that we all become better people and we do work on ourselves and we become mature we we are no longer that teenage person yet so often my inner monologue is incredibly puerile or silly or vulnerable like all of those sensations that we have when we're teenagers I don't think they're that far from the surface I think you just scratch a little bit and we 
and you know professional jealousy is like a very real thing that no one likes to talk about but <sighs> on the peel back the lens like those sensations are, I don't think um are that far away from for anyone so I think it's quite interesting to look at how people view teenagers as being separate to their adult selves in some way was that something that you discovered in the writing of this book that you felt that to be a a truth or did you set out to write a book about teenagers because you felt a kind of understanding or camaraderie with that former version of yourself um I think that I mean, the, the kind of um, initial idea for the book came when I was back in England and I hadn't been back to school at all and, and we just happened to be driving near the town where I'd gone to school. So um, I was like, well, let's, we should just stop because it would be interesting to see. And I had a very similar experience to Josephine in the book in that the school had been pretty much destroyed because it had shut down and, and so all of the old buildings had been flattened or concreted over and there was this one bit that still seemed to remain, which was the church, which was a dental surgery, <laughs> which is so weird because it, I think they couldn't mess with the structure of the building because it must be protected um, for historic reasons. And so you had, they'd essentially just kind of dropped in like little booths where you sat to have your dental work done. So you could, I, I managed to let the, um, persuade the secretary to, to let me, or the receptionist at the, at the entrance to let me go and sit in the waiting room, which was where all of the, um, altar servers would have sat when we were having our Sunday church services. And it was so weird. It was as if I'd been just sort of snatched back into my former life and I was staring at the stained glass windows and the organ and I think I just thought oh I remembered I think it was something about the hardness of the seats I was like god I just remember sitting here and so uncomfortable and so convinced that I got my period and that I was gonna have to stand up in front of all of my peers and like fine you know like and you you often don't but like I was it made me think about how uncomfortable I'd been in my body as a teenager and so self-conscious and I think a bit of a chameleon in that I didn't know quite where I fit I was you know kind of a scholarship girl so I was one of the geeky ones but I smoked and I drank and snuck out of the school and so and I so I didn't really fall into like one specific group but I think when I started writing the book I started to think about some of I don't know, some of those very like primal feelings you have of jealousy or anger or, or whatever and how similar they are to when you're a teenager. And I was like, well, there's something in that. Like, how do we evolve? How how much do any of us change from those from those younger years, I think? I, did you? Well, yeah, I wanted to... Uh, we had spoken, obviously, before the podcast about this, mm-hmm. but you said that one of your agents kind of tossed around the idea of softening the book to become a young mm. adult. And um, yes. which would have been an interesting interpretation of this, but it, it seems to, especially hearing everything you're saying, if you, if you just focused on the actual teenage experience and from mm. that perspective from Joe, but the way it's written for those listeners who haven't read it yet, you, you have the flashbacks and then you have your modern day um, yeah. marriage and everything that she's going through. And I, I just... I'm personally grateful you didn't turn it into young adult because I enjoy mm-hmm. the perspective and and how much psychological damage it had on her as yeah. an adult. So would I mean? Do you? How long did you chew on that concept of making it young well, adult? That was initially when we'd been. I had a US, um, sorry, a UK agent, but we just got our green cards, and it, and it it didn't really make sense to have representation in the UK at that time because I was having, you know, calls at like 5am in my cupboard so I wouldn't wake up my daughter who was sleeping and I was like, this is a bit crazy. So I was looking for a a US agent and um, I had a couple of conversations with different agents. um, And and yeah, so this was a conversation at the time with a woman who was like, I love your book, but I think it's YA. And it it was shocking to me. I felt like quite, it felt like if you stripped it down to just the teenage girls, then you then you wouldn't understand the legacy mm-hmm. aspect to the book. Um, and I think it was important to me. I'm always resistant to narratives that have a very sort of um, 
clear sort of arc of this person starts life this way and then they make their mistakes and they make up for them and then they're a better, happier person. And I don't think that um, that's what life is like for a lot of people. We make mistakes. We're still affected, I think, by things that we've done when we're younger in a way that's not perhaps obvious every day, but it, it sort of shadows us and has, informs us and, you know, we can strive to improve certain bits about our personality. But I don't think you can completely um, squash them. So, yeah, it didn't... It would have felt a very different book. Also, the language is probably not appropriate to <laughs> the YA audience. Bollocks. Now, so there's this moment early in the book where Jürgen... Jürgen, right? Soft J? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Where she, your protagonist is spying on him, kind of. It's a mm. voyeuristic moment, and we see Jürgen in the bathroom, and he sits down to pee. And yeah. it's this really, it's a collision of emotions I felt reading that. It's such a good scene. Because I agreed with with Joe, with your protagonist, that I would I was embarrassed on behalf of him. But mm-hmm. then I also felt the 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 avalanche of responsibility that men must feel to be manly all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. so d- when you when you wrote that little, I mean, it's just it's a tiny nugget of a moment in the book. I'm not pretending it yeah. means something more, but it it actually it left a lasting impression on me. Why did you write that? I think I was thinking a lot. I mean, she's looking through a window in that moment, and she really is sort of being a kind of peeping tom. So, in a way, I was thinking a little bit about, um, you know, the the figure of the man in my book, the pervert who who leaves these erotic well they're not very erotic are they but there's like explicit polaroid photographs everywhere and the nature of being a voyeur and looking in and how um i think we all carry with us these things that we're perhaps a little bit embarrassed about um and if you i certainly have memories of things that i've done as a teenager obviously not um doing what josephine does in the book but um small like words you said or um, people you've snubbed when you're a teenager or, you know, like not sat at a table with them or, or, or been on the receiving end of that, that you look back at now and feel shame. And I think, um, I think it was just the fact that even someone like Jürgen might have that. And he is probably the nicest or the kindest character in the book. Um, I think, you know, he, she describes him as the kind of person that if he, you know, drove in, like, reversed into someone's car, he'd leave a note with his insurance details. And she calls herself like a hit and run, which I think is probably mm-hmm. the most accurate description of their, their two personalities. And I thought, like, even someone like he probably has these elements in his lives that he hasn't told his wife about, that he, he's angry with her for keeping secrets or not wanting to talk about her past. But I think that probably a lot of people have these moments that, that they're embarrassed about and, and would rather not share. Mm-hmm. With your writing process, I'm, I'm curious how long, you know, from idea to, to submission uh, process Ooh. was like for you. And the, your book is so filled with obviously tons of plot, but it, there's so many ideas and, mm-hmm. and, and so many, at least for me when I was reading it, I'm like, wow, the, these concepts are so fleshed out and just little nuggets throughout the book of ideas, which I personally, as a reader, enjoy um, someone who's putting that thought process into it. So I, I, I am imagining this took a long time, but I, I, I am curious what it was um, like for you. I, I mean, typically I am, I'm a bit of a, like a plodder when it comes to writing and I just know that if I get up every day at 5.30am and I wear the same thing every day and I eat the exact same food every day um and have a mini panic attack if the producer of the particular cracker i eat for breakfast suddenly goes under and then i start becoming a crazy person on ebay buying it up before it leaves the shelf i'm that person so i'm very very um uh i guess ritualistic in in my day-to-day writing this book was you know the first draft of it was oddly a bit of an exception in that i'd written another book which hadn't found a home and I was um didn't have a work visa yet so I was feeling uh 
kind of ashamed that I wasn't able to bring in any money while my husband was like carrying that particular load and we couldn't afford childcare at the time. So I was right getting up very early to write and um, feeling exhausted. And then politically the world was just, we were like on that precipice before we all just started to like slide downhill. So I think like Boris Johnson was like clowning around in Britain and then Trump stuff was just starting to bubble up. And so I was, I was kind of furious and I sat down and, and vomited out this book in, in for me quite a short time, which was about a year, which I'm just a slow, a slow writer, I think. Um, but then, as you say, like, I think I described it to you as a bit like dragging the rock up the hill. Like, I, I, mm-hmm. that bit actually wasn't as hard for me this time around. But the shaping and the sort of chiseling um, and the layering of ideas, it's changed a lot since. It's almost actually unrecognisable, I think, since that first iteration. Um, and so I think when I was writing, I was thinking a lot about what it means to be divine. And then the word divine and the idea of, of gods and Greek mythology and, um, you know, this untouchable group of people. And so I was reading a lot of Greek mythology at the time and I think that starts to layer into the book. Um, and then there's this magical moment where you get an editor and they really, they just sit you down. Well, first of all, you have the conversation and they tell you they love your book completely. And it's the best place for life. <laughs> and then I said, well, just don't have too much work to do. I'll just send you a few notes. <laughs> and then you get this, oh my goodness, this letter, which is just seems the most terrifying thing that is just so long. Um, but, you know, having an editor and the book suddenly goes from this monologue in your head into a conversation, like a dialogue. And, and really Liz was just like wonderful at asking me questions. Like, why does this person do this thing there? Like, what are, what are you saying about this person when that happens? And those series of questions then um, really, I think, help enrich a book in a way that I just can't imagine having gone through this process without my editor. Like it's, and my agent, actually, we had she did um, a lot of work on the original draft. So those conversations um, really helped, I think, thicken it and, and make sure that the things that people were doing in the book, because there's some pretty horrible moments and that they are that they're there for the right reason and that I've explained in a way why why they're happening or a person is reacting to a situation like that well I've got to say my mind is a little blown I I tried to be be quiet during that but I I picked up on all of the the Greek references that you put throughout the book because I am a massive Well, we, we've discussed I'm a dork. We've decided. Yeah. Um, we were just discussing that before <laughs> She's your the phone most call. stylish dork I've ever met. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love Greek mythology, Norse mythology, oh, I'm a big history buff, all of that. So I, I noted all of your little references, but the fact that you just mm-hmm. dropped the bomb on me that what does it mean to be divine and then thinking of the Olympians as them being untouchable. Ellie, I'm going to have to go reread your book now. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I, there was this one image that I love from, um, I've got that sort of doorway to the book, The Greek Myths um, by Robert Graves. And there's yeah. um, one scene where he describes the Herarian Games, you know, which I guess is the precursor to the Olympic Games, which oh. was a series of like maidens like running. And they run um, with one breast exposed. They, they, just, one. Hmm. Just, just one. Just one. Just yeah, one. just one, not the other. <laughs> just the nip. And I just had that image whenever I would describe like the divines doing any athletics in this book, and they are they are terrible in that department. But in my mind, I was like, oh, just think about that image in my head. And just one little tip hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> well, Catherine got just caught one. up like on the Greek mythology part of the answer. I was still caught up on the crackers that you eat in the morning for breakfast. <laughs> oh. Did you? You don't really get them on eBay, right? Oh, oh do no! You, I but do. do crackers really happen for breakfast? Is that a crackers come on eBay? I tell, just anyway, to explain this. Just what's happening? I can run you through a morning in the life of my of my. So um, I get up very early and I drink a pot of fresh mint tea. So that's why I start. But then at um, about eight a.m., I get hungry, and so I make myself. I, the night before, I made myself a bowl of fruit with very specific fruit in it. No bananas, no hard fruits, and then with my coffee, there is this cracker called Dr. Cogs. No, write it down, write it down, write it down. Dr. what? Well, it's called Dr. Cogs in Europe and Dr. Cracker in America. Mm, Dr. And Cracker. It is, 
It is so perfect. It's like a sort of flatbread, seeded slightly honey flatbread, but not too sweet. And it and it does this magical thing. So you can dunk it in coffee and it will suck up the coffee, but it won't crumble into mm. your coffee. Mm. And about a year ago, they just disappeared. You couldn't get them anymore from the shelves of anywhere. And I started Googling and then they just got there. They only exist in Europe. And so now I have to have them like, I fly like. You're playing like duties. I found someone on eBay who sells them. Do you pay above retail for these now? I mean, whatever just, it takes. I, did, I mean, I know what literally whatever it takes. I might have to. Hey, you know what, Ellie? We are going to tag Cracker. Dr. Cracker when we release are this. You? Yeah, and because Dr. Cracker is going to go bonkers for you, baby. Bonkers. This is a really, <laughs> this is a really deep level product placement that we have achieved here. Um, it's really immersed in the show. Dr. Cracker is actually a sponsor of this show. And we just want to be like completely deep, transparent with our instant. listeners. Uh, Dr. They're Cracker. On Instagram, yes. It's all in German. I can't understand what they're Instagramming about. But every now and again, just to, just to see if I can sow the seed, I go on to the doctor, Dr. Cracker, <laughs> Dr. God, Instagram, and I like post like, any chance of being in America? They, like, they go crazy for these in America. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I just Googled them and, ju- and our listeners should know that it's doctor spelled out, not oh. DR. It's, it's oh, a full word. You're not in those countries now. I feel like in one country it was DR. Um, like, and they they came up for me on Whole Foods, except it does say currently not in Charleston. So yeah, it's a, I was going to be your like, dealer, oh, but, and it looks to be a picture. I mean, maybe he's a doctor, maybe he's not. It looks like it's an 1800s white man with a beard. Um, yes. Yes, that's so, it. Yeah, I hope he has a great. monocle. Um, ar- artisan breads rolled flat baked crisp. I mean, this yeah. is just the classic three seed that I'm looking at. But well, anyway, so Dr. Cracker, thank you for sponsoring this episode of Free Cookies. <laughs> Reeling Kate back in. Okay. But that is a good segue Imagine to our they ship me yeah. a packet. I'd be so excited. Th- it would this be. is. This is the perfect segue to the most important question of the podcast. Mm. Ooh. What is your favorite cookie or if we were reading your book biscuit biscuit <laughs> biscuit come on but is a cookie such a good word <laughs> oh favorite cookie mm, that's a tricky one um i think it's going to be like a salted chocolate cookie that they make okay. at my local bakery uh, cafe valerie does a very delicious like so is this in echo park this bakery it is yeah they are they're just lovely. They're just so nice. You know when you leave a place and you just feel like, oh, good people work there. Yeah. And they shine like lovely. They're just lovely. Salted, they're food, like ch- salted chocolate chip. Yeah. Okay. That's, That's classic. But but it, yeah. again, I didn't hear your your answer on this. Don't you think cookie is a better word than biscuit? What do you, I mean... Would you ever voluntarily a, use the that's word That's a leading question. Left to your own devices. Yeah. Like, like, mm, like I'll, I'll, to, no, I'll volunteer. Let me just volunteer for you. I perfectly <laughs> accept that a Windsor tart should always be called a jammy dodger. Oh, there is yeah. there's no reason to ever call the Linzer tart a Linzer tart again. Jimmy Dodgers are so good. Jimmy Dodgers is where it's at. Whereas I think Jesus. cookie is like this is just such a unique word compared to biscuit. Like would it feel fair to look at a chocolate chip cookie and be like, hello there, biscuit? No. No, no. you wouldn't because it's a different it's a different beast. Like yeah. a biscuit in England is like a childhood thing and they're usually fairly disgusting mm. like there are these ones called garibaldi which are like flat with raisins in it and you used mm. to always get them after you'd gone for a swimming lesson for some reason i don't know why <laughs> um i mean food is all nostalgia isn't it it's like it's true. if yeah. i actually look back at the foods that i was eating when i was young i'm like why did i like my mom who's a very very good cook would feed me smash and now i cannot stand mashed potatoes because i'm like ugh, it's disgusting oh. why did she feed me powdered potatoes okay oh. powder because i was gonna say look i oh, was, that a was brand? eating smash hot pockets so if you're eating mm-hmm. mashed potatoes you were way ahead of the game but hey. smash was powdered <laughs> and i was hamburger helper so it yeah. looks like we all turned out okay in the long run yeah we made it through in the end i also just like wonder though, like how long does it take to mash potatoes it's just not that long i don't really understand <laughs> Do we really need a powdered version of them? <laughs> I know, it's a bit weird. Anyway, sorry, Mum. She's a very good cook. I should yeah. say. I mean, we were eating some really terrible food in the '90s. We were being lied to a lot about mm. what was good for us. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, did you have Angel Delight? Uh, no, but tell go us on. More. 
also comes in packet form. <laughs> you add. <laughs> you add what milk. Do you add? Sort of, milk. I like. I think you add milk or water. I can't, it must be milk, and it's like a blamangy, soft, squidgy dessert that is just revolting. Is it like but, inflatable angel food cake? Like, is it just like jello <laughs> or like a cake? <laughs> so great. Okay. Angel delight. Okay, write that down too. I'm We're gonna. Down. I'm writing it down. Like, yeah, it might still exist. I don't know. Might. It's very strange. All right, so Angel Delight and Doctor Crackers. That's gonna be the. Feast but Doctor Crackers that we really. Have. Let's just Doctor Crackers on a different level than Angel Angel Delight. We oh, are yeah. mocking, and Doctor Cracker is like a no, legitimate no. thing that we want. Okay. No, Doctor Crackers. I would like. They <laughs> hold their own against any cracker I've ever eaten. <laughs> <laughs> the answer first. It's a good but, um, <laughs> It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. And everyone oh, who's listening, go pick pleasure. up the Divines. It's everywhere now. And we didn't even talk about the cover. The cover is absolutely oh, yeah, it's a great cover. Stunning. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I really lucked out. That's um an amazing collaboration between um Mumtaz, who was um, my designer, and then um, Beth Hokel, who is just this incredible um, collage artist. It's fantastic. Yeah. And don't worry, we will do a synopsis of the book for our listeners yes. because we never oh, quite got around really, to that. I'm but, not very good at elevator pictures. <laughs> yes. I, I get a bit. Yeah. Awesome. I will, it's better in your hands. Thank you so much. All that right, so well, much we'll fun. meet you at a baseball game soon, okay? Yep, see you there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good day. Bye. 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 So these crackers, you have to admit that you're a little bit like, how good can a cracker really be? Like a, well, like a little bit like that? Considering I live with the ultimate snack monster, I'm going to go with there are very passionate humans when it comes to cracker eating. Yeah, I guess I think of it as like, I don't know how fired up I get about like seeded crackers, but I, but, but again, Look, Ellie. I will buy a box of Hue crackers and within... Two hours? Well, I don't know. Let's, let's There's dregs. Like maybe dre- a couple crumbs. Dregs. Well, dregs, dregs. Dregs is a gray word, an underused word alongside tomfoolery and another underused word. Is that underused? You, you think it should be used less than it already is? <laughs> oh, tomfoolery. Tomfoolery is just, it's such a... It, Let me so, go put on my feathered cap. And <laughs> but tomfoolery, it's such an energetic, passionate word. And scofflaw, scofflaw is another fantastic word. What have you been reading? Where, where are these words coming from? Well, What's happening to well, you? Well, we, we, we had a guest from England, so I read a lot of old English books in preparation. Oh, you've been hitting up the Chaucer, eh? The Chaucer? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, her? <laughs> <laughs> um, we should wrap up the show. I want to, I would like to get some of these crackers to put you've Ellie's... You've been stocking these crackers. In yeah, fact, but as, as Ellie alluded to, she didn't allude, she said outright, you can't get your hands on them. So... I, am I going to fight? I'm, it's like I'm, the shoe drop of, of crackers. crackers. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not going to fight people. It's like the Ivy Park of crackers. I think it's disrespectful if I don't really want these crackers to take a box from someone who would want them. That's not fair. It's kind of like when the bots get all the sneaker drops. But don't you want one so you can get a box and you can shake it in a boomerang and put up on your story and yeah, yeah, gather listen. all of the longing people who wish they had your box of crackers? Ooh. I, if Ellie's listening and if she's made it this far, I don't know if she's willing to do this, but if she's willing to send me, not a box of that, that's too much, a sleeve. I assume inside the box, there's like three sleeves. Ellie, if you will mail us one individual cracker. But put it overnight so that it gets here crisp. (laughs) Don't use FedEx, they've been crap. Yeah, they've got a lot to handle with the vaccines. We should wrap up the show, shall we? Wrap up the show? Yes. You can support the show on Patreon, Patreon backslash free cookies. Or it also really helps the show if you rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. That is correct. If you rate and review it poorly, it's still a metric and that helps us. But don't do that because we're going to read it aloud on the show. And we will send you very sad. We'll send you sad We'll send you sad emojis. You know that emoji where the eyes are welling and it looks like a little cartoon character? And you can use it because someone says something really nice or because they just got a really bad podcast review. That's what we'll send you. Yeah. Along with upsetting. the devil emoji. We are produced by Lindsay Collins of FMB Radio. You should check out her podcast. There's new art on her podcast. There is. Yes. 
Which, actually, question for those of you who are still here, because I feel like you were the devout followers. We're thinking of changing up our artwork. We're thinking of changing up, you know, the... The look. The look. We, the, we, we're thinking about doing a quote-unquote rebrand. Rebrand. We don't would, know what that would entail yet, but... Caroline what, Shea, who I know is still listening. What do you think, Caroline Shea? Should we do a rebrand? Mom, should we do a rebrand? <laughs> you can email us at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com or on, you can hit us up on Instagram, freecookiespodcast. Follow the Inky Phoenix. Follow Catherine. Follow me. Follow America. Follow. Only if you believe in what you're following. 